0: You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and
1: principles of leadership.
0: Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell and as always, I'm thrilled to have your company, Burnout. It's quite the topic. For a lot of people, it's an emotional and physical reality that overpowers their life. The good news though, we're talking more about it as a community. We understand its causes more than ever, and we're learning how to manage it more effectively as individuals, groups, and organizations. And more than any of that, we have wonderful people like Alison Coughlin thinking, talking, and writing about it. Alison has made a terrific contribution to the topic of burnout, and she's here to tell us all about it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Alison Coughlin. Alison Coughlin, welcome to the Team Guru podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks, David.
0: Now, Alison, you're the author of a fabulous new book called The Health Hazard: Take Control, Restore Wellbeing, and Optimize Impact. And one of the main themes of your book is burnout, all about burnout, the way it affects us, and what we can do to manage it in our life. And, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting in your book was those archetypes you created of the masks people wear when they're suffering from burnout. I found those truly fascinating. So let's get to all of that tonight. And of course, as my listeners will be well aware, I always ask the guests to leave us with some gold nuggets, five of their top tips for managing this, and and you're all set to do that. So we'll talk a little bit about what burnout is and how it affects us, and we'll get to those top tips. Are you feeling okay about
1: that? Yep. That sounds terrific.
0: Now, you know, Alison, I sent you a few questions, but I always catch people off guard. I'm going to hit you up front with why you were qualified to talk about burnout. What role has this played in your life and in your career? How are you in a position now where burnout was the topic that you wanted to write about in a book like this?
1: Yeah. Thanks, David. So for me, I've had almost 30 years of experience in the health and social sectors in a whole range of different roles and in leadership, but also in my own consultancy. So I've worked with lots and lots of organizations over many years in this sector. I've also probably have one of those archetypal personalities where I have been a high achiever. I've been very, very driven by my purpose and my my personal purpose around making a difference through my work to the extent that I actually experienced burnout myself. So a very long slow decline over many years, and then managed to somehow sustain burnout for a number of years before I finally really hit the deck. And so, I guess I bring my I bring my experience of working in the health and social sectors, but also my own personal experience of burnout. In terms of the motivation for writing the book, this is not something that we have been openly talking about in the health and social sector or more broadly until more recently. And it's particularly been fueled by the impact that COVID and the pandemic has had on our communities and in our workplaces. But what I was finding as I was recovering from burnout was that I was starting to work again in the sector. I was doing good work again, but almost every team that I was working with was really struggling. And I had individual clients that I would work with and who, once we started to have private conversations, they'd be saying, I don't think I can do this anymore. And it's one of those things, I guess, that once you see it, you can't unsee it. And the more I was talking about it and sharing my own experiences, the more people were coming out of the woodwork and saying, thank goodness, I'm not alone in my experience. And so I originally thought it was something that I probably should hide because it's not something that's, that's uh, you know, that kind of vulnerability and weakness potentially that could be seen around experiencing burnout, but it just seemed to be that this could actually be the most important work that I ever do. And so I chose to channel my energies in this direction because it's absolutely a crisis in our our sectors and in our workplaces that we need to address. And so we've got to start talking about it. So I took a leap. (laughs) So it's the confluence
0: of your professional life and and your personal experience. And and that's a a really great platform on which to stand. It, it must give you arm you with so many stories and understanding and insights to what people are seeing. So this is the sort of thing like like Daniel Kahneman talks about in his book Thinking Fast and Slow, where when you're buying a car and you've got your eye on a certain type of car and you're thinking it through, when you're driving around for the next few days while you're thinking about buying a car, you see that car on the road a lot, and that's one of the things about thinking fast and thinking slow, there are a million good ideas in there. And I'm hearing that from your point of view, it was a little bit the same. When you experienced it yourself in workplaces, which you'd been part of all of your career until then, all of a sudden you were looking around and seeing these symptoms in people, these little signs, these little windows into human beings, and you were seeing burnout because you recognized it so clearly. You were attuned to it. You'd you'd honed in on it. That's a really interesting concept. And, you know, it's easy to give our world a hard time and talk about the fact that we're stressed and there's so much going on and our attention is torn and we're so connected. We're connected like never before, but we don't really have deep relationships anymore. And all of those social ills that we hear everywhere and we've talked endlessly on this podcast about. But having said all that, there's also no better time in history to be able to speak openly about these kind of things. You know, the idea of admitting to burnout and the same as admitting to mental ill health where we've never been better placed in society to talk openly about those things. Is is that true or am I being a bit rose-coloured?
1: Oh, no, absolutely. I would agree wholeheartedly with that. I had a a conversation very recently with with a group of people in the in the health sector and after that conversation, there was a, a woman who'd been a nurse for 40 years and had said this is the very first conversation in 40 years where it's been okay to say not waving, drowning. So there is starting to be a recognition about the need for us to be vulnerable, the need for us to have these conversations, and when I've been, you know, talking talking about this to have leaders who are chairing those sessions saying I recognize so much of this in myself and I have things I need to work on here. And that's really sort of a game-changing part of the conversation that I'm certainly witnessing in the sector.
0: And that ability that you have to see it in others because of your own experience is amazing. And that's it comes back to those masks that we wear that we'll talk about in a little while. Because if you're not tuned into it, if you maybe haven't done work in the area as a professional or experienced it yourself or confronted it in your world in some way a lot of the behaviors that we see from people as a result of burnout on the surface look like different things and one of them was change resistance and that that caught my eye because that's a large part of the work that I do so I found that really interesting as well that you can see burnout in people because of your experience whereas others might see different things and judge them differently on that and that's a part of the conversation that we'll have later. But let's start with the most obvious question at all, of course. What is burnout? When we're talking about that, it's a word that we use more and more. It's part of our vernacular. But what is it that we're really talking about when we use that word?
1: Yeah. So burnout was first characterized in the 70s. It took another 45 years, though, before it was really formally classified. So in 2019, it was classified as an occupational phenomenon resulting from chronic workplace stress that hasn't been successfully managed. So, As
0: recently as 2019 for the first time. Yeah. Wow.
1: Would you believe? And only June of this year, in 2021, have we now got a standard around psychological safety in the workplace and international standards. So it's taken a long time for this to be formally recognized, but- but we're, you know, making good progress in that regard, definitely. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organisation.
0: So what is the definition of it in, in that way? It's been recognised formally, and I'm sorry, you probably said it then, but I was I was focused on a, a different part of what you said. Could you repeat that for us? What 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 are the words?
1: Yeah, so it's an occupational phenomenon resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed.
0: Why is it getting, well, I was was about to ask, why is it getting worse? But then I checked myself and I, I wondered, is it getting worse? Or is this something that we've been living with since the original industrial revolution and we just haven't been willing to talk about it or We haven't been able to give it a label, or is it indeed getting worse? Where does it sit there?
1: Yeah, so both. So it's certainly been a significant problem for a very long time. So I would argue that it's a a problem or a dilemma that has been generations in the making, in fact. And it's sort of supported and precipitated by a whole lot of norms and practices that we have in our workplaces, as well as beliefs and, you know, qualities that we bring in ourselves as practitioners as well. But it has also been shown to be getting worse. worse, And certainly the era of COVID has influenced that substantially. So pre-COVID, around a third of workers in the health and social sectors were shown to have symptoms of burnout. And a recent global study has shown more than 50%, which is actually stunning if you just stop and think about that just for a moment in terms of what that means in terms of our workforce and our workplaces and our teams in these sectors.
0: Well, that that leads me to a couple of different questions. Firstly, why the increase? Why have we gone from a third of workers, so what is that, 33.3%, up to over 50% of workers in the health and social services sector? Why Why is that sector so much more prone than others? Or is it indeed more prone than others?
1: Yeah, certainly it is. And so there's this link to sort of purpose-driven work, really, where our identity and our sort of sense of meaning in life is intrinsically linked to the work that we do. When that happens, we can be at risk of burnout. And then when there's inherent risks within the roles that we undertake as well, which there are of course in those sectors. It has interestingly been shown to occur also in direct and indirect roles, so not just in frontline workers, but in people who who care very deeply about health and social issues and work tirelessly to try and impact on those. So there's a range of roles that we know that people are at higher risk of burnout when they undertake those work roles. So roles where people are are sustained in their exposure to emotional or distressing, stressful situations, and also to violence in the workplace. So frontline workers, people working in oncology, for example, emergency services, people in palliative care, people who are working with the most disadvantaged people in our societies. And then there's also individual factors that influence that. So women are at a higher risk of burnout people early in their career, but also people who are mid-career, so people who often have competing challenges at home with caring responsibilities, potentially with ageing parents, trying to think about that transition towards retirement, people who have stresses at home or conflict at home, relationship issues, financial distress, people who are socially isolated, and then there's this other concept which I think is endemic within these sectors is our tendency around perfectionism. So people who are dutiful, who are conscientious, who are faithful, high achievers are often attracted to work in these areas and it's one of those things that can lead to people running on empty as a part of their norm within their work.
0: Wow, there is so much in that. Look, one of the first things I thought as you were talking then was the double edged sword of picking a career in something that you're passionate about. Of course, when we were all choosing our career ridiculously back when we were 17 or 18 years old, isn't that a, a silly concept? We, you know, part of the advice we were getting was to choose something you're passionate about, find something that you love, something you care about, which is all still sound advice. But the other edge of that, is that if you care too much about it, if you care too much about the outcomes for the customers or the clients or the the patients that you're working with, it can actually lead to burnout because you can never do enough. You can never help enough people in whatever field that you're working in if you feel passionate about it. Do you ever think about that, that the double edged nature of that
1: sword? Yeah, absolutely. The very, the very things that that draw us into careers in in you know in compassion and in the relief of suffering and in trying to address some of the really gnarly problems that we have in our in our society absolutely put individuals at risk. There's that piece, but then there's also what we bring to it personally, is that if that is about my meaning and my identity, this is a part of how I see myself as a person in the world, a part of what I'm hoping to achieve from my life, then there's a whole lot of pressure on that because these things are not easy. The problems are not easy to address. There's always more complexity and more demand. There's always people experiencing disadvantage whose needs are not met within our systems or services. And so no matter what we achieve, we can often go, well, there's more to go and there's more to go. I've just got to keep going. I've just got to keep going. So we put pressure on ourselves and others put pressure on us as well as a part of this concept of you're doing good work. This is so important. You need to keep going.
0: If you're sitting listening to this and thinking, geez, that's me, don't worry. We're we're going to ask Alison later to talk about the top few things that she knows about through her experience and research and, and writing that we can do to manage burnout in our life. So we'll get to that. But I was interested by so much of what you said before. When you said those early in their career are susceptible to burnout when they work in these kind of industries, that made sense because we're still growing, we're still maturing, we're still working out if this sector is right for us, if this type of work is right for us. We're still maturing in our approach to managing our own emotions, so that you know, and maybe we're still developing our professional skill set in how to deal with different situations and different types of customers and patients. but then you also said those in midlife, and that makes sense too i'm someone I guess right in the epitome of midlife, and I can relate to the idea of having lots of competing Priorities in my life. I have three young kids. Actually, and you and I have something in common, Alison. Our youngest is called Sophie. I bet your ah, Sophie is a beautiful, beautiful princess as well. I read that <laughs> in your book. So sure. we, my Sophie is three. I have a five-year-old and I have an eight-year-old. Life is busy, and of course, our parents are all aging. That that's the other thing that happens at about this time. We're we're having children later. So, at a time when we might still have young children, our parents are getting really old as well, and my lost my dad two years ago in two thousand and nineteen, and of course, a difficult time. but there's the big lead up to that where he's very ill for a long time, and there's all these incredible competing priorities, and it's not just about having old parents, and it's not just about having young kids; there can be any number of factors in your life that are competing for your attention, and if you're then going to work in a really demanding setting where you feel this professional responsibility to support as many people as you can who need your help, geez, you can imagine why that leads to burnout for a lot of people. What about other industries? You've talked about human and social services or health and social services. That makes a lot of sense. Are there other industries where the numbers are are really high as well, more so than, than the rest?
1: So most of the most of the literature talks about health and social sectors and related workplaces and environments. There's also evidence around people who have who might be in unpaid work, but who are, have significant caring responsibilities. For for example, parents of children with significant disabilities, for example, or who have sort of relentless demands and challenges and who kind of often will be running on empty, so so unpaid roles, but generally an education, you know, justice. So, in this sort of purpose-driven environment, so people who are passionate, who are engaged in something that is linked to social purpose generally, who care very passionately about their work or have that tendency towards perfectionism that I mentioned as well. So though, all of those things, when they're lined up and when work and life have an intrinsic level of overlap, then those people can be at risk of burnout. But it has particularly been shown in those social sort of services industries, that's my world that I've operated in and in health, but also, you know, education, justice, so other systems where we're focused on purpose, social purpose in some way or another.
0: I've heard it said many times from different speakers and professionals that those in social services, those drawn to those kind of occupations, often put themselves last. I think that's probably a whole another episode altogether, and we can probably make some rational links as to why that is, but geez, it's an interesting phenomena, and when you combine that with the type of work that they do and, and the other factors that we've described, it can make for for pretty dangerous territory. All right, well, let's talk about what burnout feels like and looks like for individuals. What kind of things are we talking about here? How do you know when burnout is the right word for you to be using?
1: Yeah, so there's sort of three uh, hallmarks of burnout, if you like. So the first is emotional exhaustion, so complete and utter depletion of emotional, physical and mental energy. The second hallmark is depersonalization. So a withdrawal, a distancing, a reduction in our sort of empathy that we might be able to feel or express and a level of cynicism that can result challenges also in our emotional regulation. So as we become increasingly frustrated and stressed and those sorts of things. The third hallmark is around reduced personal efficacy. So a loss of confidence in ourselves and in our competence and also a growing challenge in being able to see the actual accomplishments from our work. And so you can see how these things as a syndrome, when they work together, the exhaustion, the disconnection and depersonalization and that reduced efficacy, how they then work together as a part of this vicious vicious cycle so these very things will then detract from our effectiveness in our work, in our sense of accomplishment, in that passion and that you know, strong sense of purpose that we bring, bring to this work and what we hope to achieve from this work starts to become further and further away from the reality of our daily lives. And so it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy and a, and a vicious cycle in action In terms of how it then impacts, obviously on individuals it can impact very significantly psychologically and physically. It also has impacts in our workplaces. So negative influence on our workplace culture can lead to toxic behaviours and challenges, absenteeism, high turnover, more pressure, all of these things creating more pressure on resources and on people in an overstretched workplace and system. And then obviously for the people that we're here to serve in terms of our caring, patients and carers and communities, the recipients of our services, the safety and the quality of our services can be compromised. And so it becomes this sort of, you know, significant, perfect storm really in the making.
0: I'm going to read just a little bit out of your book, Alison, and this amazed me. It it doesn't it makes sense, and, and it's all very much a part of this story, but it, you'll know what I mean when I start to read it. it. It kind of goes against what you would expect. Organizations created to deliver social impact, so organizations created to do social good can become toxic, inefficient, and ineffective, and the limited resources that are available are then spread even more thinly as time, energy, and money are invested in dealing with performance issues conflict in the workplace and responding to a high level of staff disconnection and apathy, as well as growing absenteeism and inevitably staff turnover. That's a really bleak picture of organizations that are created. They were conceived to do good in the world, yet by their very nature, they end up burning the people who are part of them. And We know, and we don't want to get into a massive political discussion here, although it could easily go that way, looking after our country's most vulnerable or the world's most vulnerable seems to be becoming lower and lower on the priority scales of national governments. So those kind of organizations seem to be dealing more and more with less and less resources. And it's just putting the clamp on everything that we've talked about. What do you make of all of that? What's the direction it's heading in? Is it going to get any easier to work in health and the social sector? Or is it just going to continue to get more difficult?
1: Yeah. So, do you know, despite my own experiences and what we see there as an incredibly bleak picture, my cup is half full and I feel very optimistic about the future. I think that we are at a really significant time in terms of this being on the agenda and this being taken seriously, perhaps for the first time in generations. I recently attended a global summit on ending physician burnout. It was the first in the world. This is growing as a movement and growing in momentum. And it's something that we have to pay attention to. I think there would be, and what, what I would caution against is that we link this to the pandemic and we somehow believe that this will be sorted once the pandemic is over. Mm, As I said before, this is, you know, generations in the making and it's not going to go away without significant cultural transformation in our systems and a different way of how we focus on the problems that we're facing at all of those different levels, society, system, workplaces, teams and individuals and how we support people and the norms that we create in those workplaces. So there's significant work to happen, but we also know that there are organisations that have very similar challenges, but they don't have as high a prevalence of burnout within those workplaces. And so there are things that we know help to build resilient teams and resilient individuals in workplaces and so that shift to a focus on rejecting burnout as an inevitability in these sectors and focusing on how do we build resilience in our workplaces as well as create social impact. And what if more resilient individuals, leaders that foster greater resilience in the workplaces more resilient teams actually leads to better outcomes that are delivered more efficiently and more productively than we are at the moment while we're running on empty as a system and as people so I'm very optimistic about the future but we have to make sure that this stays on the agenda
0: well you, you have me convinced that I'm so pleased to hear that despite all of your experience and all of your work and your writing and your thinking and your talking your glass is still very much and very obviously half full which is Terrific, Alison. Hey, I love these masks. As I told you in an email I sent you today, and and as I even mentioned at the beginning of this episode, we probably haven't got time to go through all seven or eight or nine of them. I find them fascinating because of what I mentioned earlier. It means that people who are suffering burnout present in a lot of different ways, which is human nature. That That's part of the, the great thing about humanity is the variety of of personalities and traits that we have, but it also means that people can be misunderstood and misinterpreted, and their struggles can be seen in a different light. Do you want to tell us about some of the more telling of these masks or these archetypes that you've described in your book?
1: Yeah, so they reflect the concept of what happens to human beings when they're running on empty, effectively. And as you say, there's a whole range of of different personality types and different manifestations and what's going on at home and what's going on at work and how that can actually manifest in behaviour within the workplace that actually then precipitates this problem. And so things, as we're exhausted, as we're feeling kind of done and maybe we need to be upping the ante on our self-care, but maybe we don't kind of value that. And so we have things like the selfless crusader archetype, if you like. So someone that goes above and beyond and may be quite critical of others who seem to be putting themselves first or looking after themselves. Then there might be people that become really resentful within the workplace or resistant to change because it just they're just change-weary, they're bone Weary and another great idea comes on, and I've got to find the energy to get excited about another great idea. But there's been many great ideas over time, and it just feels relentless. I've got nothing left in my tank. People who become very cynical <laughs> after many years in the job and say, Yeah, sure, you know, show me the money and we'll, and then we'll talk, you know, so that can be a block to change that's happening people who have work hours that just creep into it. I might point out that you
0: used David as the cynic in your book. (laughs) David the cynic. He feels like he's the main character in Groundhog Day. New initiatives, ideas, and projects come and go, but it feels like, despite great energy, enthusiasm, and effort over the years, that nothing ever changes in a meaningful way. And Meanwhile, the fundamental problems that he and his colleagues are facing are never truly addressed when a new idea comes along David digs his heels in, resisting all attempts to engage and participate. What's the point, says David the Cynic.
1: Now, I must say that they are made-up names, (laughs) Ah. (laughs) and they are archetypes that are based on a collective of observations over time. So no, it's a pure coincidence, David.
0: And David's <laughs> quite yes. a common name. I'm going to let you off the hook. Now, I, I, I was talking <laughs> over you there. Where, where else were you headed? And I've, I've got a couple of my favorites that I'll cover before we move off this as well.
1: Yeah. One of my favorites is the, you know, where we get selective and we go, yeah, you know, oh, I'm a bit Stuart. done here. You know, I'm here for the patients. I'm not here for the team. Don't talk to me about any of this organizational vision and value stuff. I'm just here for the team. So if you're going to do team building, Count me out.
0: I'm here for the patience.
1: Yeah, so I'm gonna choose what I'm here for. Even though I'm an employee of an organization, you know, and and so you've got other well intentioned people around you in a team who can feel depleted and defeated by that kind of behaviour. You know, when they're trying they've got the same challenges that they're facing, but you know, it can be really divisive within a team.
0: And these are portraits to the way that we, as you said, as individuals respond to the same challenges. And it's so fascinating the different ways that individuals respond to these same challenges. Stuart, as you just talked about, selective focus. All right, there's a rest, everything else is rubbish. The system's terrible. We get no funding. Everything's bad. The government's bad. The senior leadership are bad. They have got no idea what we do. I'm here for the patients. And I'm just here for the pay. I'm not even here for my teammates, the the people I share a staff room with. It's just so fascinating. And I know you were going to talk about another one, but I just want to compare that with Susan, who's facing the same challenges. But Susan, made up name of course, but we all know the archetype. She's the late night worker. She's feeling the same pressures that Stuart feels, but her response is to try and work her way out of it. So she goes home and works to midnight every day. And she's also got this quirk that we've all seen that not only does she work to midnight every day, every night, she wants people to know it. So she sends emails at 10.42 at night, and she looks down upon people who don't have that same level of commitment because this is her response to the extreme pressure she's feeling.
1: Absolutely. And all of those pieces in terms of what that then does to that culture within the team, what are the expectations that this sets for others what's the standard that we have here what are we trading our time for our well-being for and is this even productive being hyper on you know switched on all the time relentless and recognizing that that might not lead to greatest productivity but it can really impact on colleagues within a workplace culture so And even the pressure, you know, we can have completely unrealistic expectations sometimes and massive workloads, impossible, in fact, workloads and leaders who are struggling, who are then hand passing those struggles down the line and putting relentless and impossible expectations on their team and not really knowing what else to do in that situation until. They can't work there anymore because they just can't continue. And so there's so much attrition that we have in workplaces where it's just absolutely not sustainable.
0: All right, then, Alison, let's get to the gold, let's get to the good stuff. I, I love those archetypes, those masks, as we've talked about. What are your top five tips for handling and managing burnout? And you'll notice that I didn't say um, dealing with it or identifying it, I I talked about managing it, because I, I guess that all falls into that broad bucket. So where shall we start with this, Alison?
1: Yeah, so I guess, first of all, the good news is that what I discovered, as soon as I started taking care of myself, and as soon as I made an active choice, that I was going to recover and I would never let this happen to myself again. And I was going to learn whatever I needed to learn and try whatever I needed to try to overcome this is that I realized that there were so many fundamental beliefs and practices that were ingrained in my life and that were ingrained in the sector that actually precipitated this. Number one. Number two That as I started practicing self-care techniques and all sorts of things, I actually liberated time and energy and focus. I could do more with less. And I kind of ran counter to all of those things. I was a late-night worker, you know. I would I would go above and beyond because I thought that's what a good person doing good work did. And I became more effective through what I learned from that process. So my tips would be the first one would be to take control of what you can and let go of what you cannot. So this starts with an individual and their choices and their actions and for them to consider what they're taking responsibility for, where they've relinquished power over their own personal well-being to others and for them to exercise control and influence where they can and let go of what they can't. The second is about self-compassion. So in work that where compassion is at the forefront of what we do, compassion for others, it could be that the most powerful thing that you can do to serve others is to put yourself first and recognizing that selflessness and self-sacrifice, sure, they can serve you until they can't anymore because you face down. So, self compassion and compassion for others, and recognizing that some of the norms in these sectors are such that, you know, we value the self sacrifice, the selflessness, not self compassion. Or we might see that as being selfish. So, we need to sit with the discomfort of that and go, actually, putting myself first is the only way I can serve others. The third piece is to think about your energy and your well-being as a bucket, a bucket with a whole lot of holes in it. Everybody's bucket has holes in it because we are human beings and we have things that will drain our energy and well-being reserves and there'll be things that fill it as well. And so it's a dynamic system in action and for people to think consciously about their their bucket of their energy and wellbeing reserves as their fuel for life. This is what gives them choices and freedom and sustainability and meaning and fulfilment of their purpose. And if the bucket is draining faster than it's filling, it's going to be empty at some point. And empty is burnout and you can't pour from an empty bucket and you could be risking many, many things in work and in life. So that would be a concept that I would suggest that people really think about actively and think about what am I doing? How can I reduce the drains? How can I fill my bucket and recognize that it's also really personal and really unique to each individual? It's not going to be fixed with, you know, yoga classes and wellness spaces in our workplaces. It's got to be personal as well as what happens within our organizations. The fourth point would be about focusing on our resilience and the impact. And it's really fascinating because there's lots of pushback on the R word of resilience. You know, aren't we the most resilient people in any workforce anywhere? This is about resilience as a state, not a personality trait, not a fixed trait. So it's a product of our interaction with our environment, our workload, our workplace culture, the stresses that we face, our system issues, and our personal circumstances And so focusing on our workforce as our most precious resource, but our the resilience of the individual, the team, and our organizations as perhaps one of the most strongest indicators of what our success will be in terms of tackling those health and social challenges that we face. So passionate, compassionate people with a strong social purpose, thriving, healthy, and fulfilled. And leaders who model and foster resilience in the workplace. And then finally, I would say that we need to continue the conversation and we need to build communities of resilience champions in these sectors. So as we've discussed, you know, this has been generations in the making and it's not, there's not a quick fix here or a magic bullet. It's going to take concerted efforts and transformational efforts over many years to come. And whilst these are relatively new conversations, we need to actually continue this process and think about personal responsibility, responsibility within our leaders and responsibility at organizational and sector level to truly and meaningfully take this on.
0: Alison, that is wonderful advice and a, a really fine place for us to leave our conversation. I really enjoy, I really appreciate you joining me on the Team Guru podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, David. It's been a great conversation and I'm very grateful to you.
0: And that was Alison Coghlan. Burnout, it can be a torrid, consuming state. But I share Alison's optimism that our collective understanding, our willingness to talk about it and confront it in our lives means that we're in a better place than ever to manage it effectively. And I loved her five tips. Number one, take control of what you can and let go of what you can't. Number two, practice self-compassion. Even if you're driven to help others, you've got to start with yourself. Number three, think about energy and well-being as a bucket. It's got holes in it and the contents are trickling out at varying rates, but we can fill it. We've got to make a conscious choice to do so. Number four, focus on resilience at the individual team and organization level. And now, more than ever, we need leaders who model and foster resilience. And number five, we need to build resistance champions in the workplace. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Alison on the Lessons learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalog of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me on the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.